Welcome back to another episode of Into the Night Minute. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1985 John Landis directed comedy Into the Night, one minute of screen time per episode. I am Robert Platt. You can call me The Professor. You might know me from Annihilation Minute, a slow burn podcast where I am covering Annihilation one minute at a time. Another dialogue light minute begins as Diana and Ed come to the glass doors of the Beverly House, 1011 North Beverly Drive. I talked about the specifics of this house last minute, but the opulence here matters in the abstract as well. As Adam Thomas argues in I Killed Him for the Money, the American Dream and Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, Opticon 1826, Spring 2009, quote, I killed him for money and a woman. I didn't get the money and I didn't get the woman. Pretty, isn't it? So begins Walter Neff's confession in Billy Wilder's Double Indemnity, a confession that tells how he fell for a femme fatale Phyllis Dietrichson, how he planned and undertook the murder of her husband and attempted to claim the life insurance he himself sold to the dead man. The audience also hears that Neff's actions aroused the suspicions of his boss and mentor, Keyes, and led to a shootout with Phyllis that proves fatal for both. Hence that famous opening line. More than just an example of Raymond Chandler's and Wilder's pithy dialogue, the line encapsulates the film's criticism of the American ideal. Neff's future of upward mobility and a loving wife is gone. Furthermore, in the course of pursuing this dream, he has destroyed a family, attempted to cheat his employer, and murdered a typical hard-working citizen. With this statement comes the verbal proof of what the plot goes on to demonstrate. The American dream is dead. Double Indemnity is by no means the only film to express such sentiment. In the struggle to define film noir, Raymond Bord and Etienne Chomaton cite a specific sense of malaise. This malaise is as vital to the genre as violent death or dangerous women. It is in this structure of noir that we find its strongest assault on the American promise. In Double Indemnity, such pessimistic melancholy is almost obscenely abundant. The film reeks of modernist discontent with the direction America was heading and borrows from that movement the tropes of fragmentation, alienation, nonlinear plots, and subjective narration to express a similar disdain for modernity. By the time of the film's release in 1944, creators of the noir aesthetic like Wilder, Chandler, and James M. Kane, who wrote the novel from which the film was adapted, had recently seen recession, war, and race riots. They were fast becoming disillusioned with their nation being faced with what director Joseph Losey called the complete unreality of the American dream. It is how they articulated the disillusionment that I seek to explain. To understand how film noir disparages the American dream, a definition of the dream itself is needed. As has often been pointed out, few terms are defined in so many different ways or bandied about more loosely. While certainly signifying the promise that America offers to its inhabitants, the American dream remains an amorphous and fluid notion that has constantly been revised according to historical period, and thus is not easily pinned down, but there are recognizable tenets. In its earliest phase, Puritan settlers defined it as freedom of religion. 
The Founding Fathers gave it its most famous written description as the unalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Jeffersonian republicanism equated it with the individualism and freedom that the self-sufficiency of land ownership provided. In the 19th century, middle-class Victorian principles associated the dream with clear and separate gender spheres, with women as housekeeping mothers and men as homeowning providers, pure family values and strict morality. Immigrants seeking a new future in the U.S. and those who already lived there often dreamt of home ownership in cities or unsettled land on western frontiers. Gilded Age industrial capitalism gave rise to the rags-to-riches belief in upward social and economic mobility, particularly through hard work. The early 20th century brought increased wages, mass production, and consumer culture that placed emphasis on material evidence, reiterating the importance of home and car ownership. The decade of double indemnity's release witnessed the beginning of a reaffirmation among middle-class white Americans of Victorian family values. The appearance of the nuclear family in the American dream saw very large numbers of people constructing lives in a relatively new and very specific ideal of family life. It was an ideal based upon a small family unit consisting only of cohabiting married parents with an assumption of the same Victorian separate gender domains and their children, for whom they were responsible. By the time Faux Noir was born, all these varied threads had accumulated into a composite mythology that Americans could draw upon in forming their aspirations. Each thread, be it the nuclear family, upward mobility, hard work, or commercial status symbolism, can be traced to particular and varied historical circumstance. All these threads are targets of the Faux Noir polemic. Every single historical component, and thus the dream they constitute, meet pointed criticism. End quote. Notably, of course, this pessimistic melancholy remains far beyond that novel or that film adaptation and permeates all of film noir. As we are here in Bel Air and now Beverly Hills, it is worth noting, as Tina Olson-Lent puts it in The Dark Side of the Dream, the image of Los Angeles in film noir, quote, As the Los Angeles settings become more specific and recognizable in these films noirs, the city itself becomes firmly identified as the locus of and metaphor for the alienation, despair, and overall malaise infecting contemporary society. In Los Angeles in particular, the poorer neighborhoods butt right up against the richer ones. An opulent mansion like this is only a short drive from a run-of-the-mill suburban home like Ed's. Still, someone like Ed may never have been on a property like this because it probably never came up. Diana, on the other hand, has a key. Ed is out of his element, as many a quote-unquote hero would be in any film noir, traipsing onto movie lots, into fancy nightclubs, even fancier hotels, and now the Beverly House, where John and Jackie Kennedy honeymooned. He drove here in a limousine, but of course he was driving that limousine. Someone who belongs here would be riding in the back. If we take Thomas's pessimistic melancholy, Faux Noir's disdain for modernity and the urban environment, what then of this opulence, which is not really urban or suburban, but financially, socially, above either? How many rooms does Ed's house have? It certainly has no statuary, no fountains, no tennis courts. I cannot find a listing online for Ed's house specifically, but a similar house on the same block of Segral Way has 1,020 square feet, three beds, one bath. The Beverly House has 19 beds, 29 baths. You park at the curb in front of Ed's house. Here you take the longest private drive in Beverly Hills. It leads to an ovular courtyard on the other side of this massive house. This house could swallow Ed's house whole. Ed does not belong, and he should be feeling it too. 
Twenty hours ago, he was on his way to the airport, headed to the artificial opulence of Vegas. And now, he has drifted into increasingly large examples of the real thing. His life is a boring mess. His wife is cheating on him. He has been unable to keep up with his job. He cannot sleep. If there were a voiceover, how might it go? What would Ed's existential crisis sound like? Might he be reminded, as my twisted brain is, of the dream quest of Unknown Cadeth by Lovecraft, the streets of Inganok, quote, The inlaid doors and figured house fronts, carven balconies, and crystal-paneled oriels all gleamed with a somber and polished loveliness, and now and then a plaza would open out with black pillars, colonnades, and the statues of curious beings, both human and fabulous. Some of the vistas down long and unbending streets or through side alleys and over bulbous domes, spires, and arabesqued roofs were weird and beautiful beyond words, and nothing was more splendid than the massive height of the great central temple of the Elder Ones, with its sixteen carven sides, its flattened dome, and its lofty, pinnacled belfry, overtopping all else, and majestic, whatever its foreground." End quote. Ed Oaken may have entered that magic tunnel in Bel Air, and it may have still felt like the real world, albeit filled with new, strange people and unfamiliar dangers. But emerging in Beverly Hills, a few miles east in the real world geography, Ed has entered another world entirely. The lions in the fountain resemble those in the Alhambra of Muhammad V in Granada, Spain, but they might as well be aliens. Like that time traveler servant's British agent who keeps showing up, like those bumbling Savak fools who are horribly destructive and dangerous when they need to be. This is not the real world. This is Beverly Hills. Second six. Diana leans down by the doors to unlock it. Second nine cut to inside as she slides the door open. She enters slowly, looks back at Ed behind her. He enters second fifteen and slowly slides the door shut behind him. Second seventeen angle through doorway from a very red room. Judging by the floor tiles outside, the room and the wood wainscoting inside, this seems to still be the actual interior of the Beverly House. In fact, an extra Google search and I can confirm this is the billiard room at the Beverly House with the billiard table removed, I guess. The lamp seen here with the horn can be seen in this very location in a photo in Architectural Digest piece on the house's most recent market listing, 3rd October 2018. Its twin sits at the other end of a couch. On the wall to the right is a Picasso. Specifically, this is Portrait Imaginaire 2369. Discover Goldmark describes Picasso's final years as a creative frenzy. Quote, the sheer volume of Picasso's final years is breathtaking to behold the numbers seemingly impossible for so old a man to have accomplished. Karsten Peter Wank, in the second volume of his Pablo Picasso, Tash in 1992, reveals the statistics for the artist's unbelievable output. 347 etchings between March and October of 1968. 167 paintings from January 69 to the same month a year later. 194 drawings from December 69 to January of 71. 156 etchings from January 1970 to March 72. 172 drawings between November 71 and August 72, and a massive 201 paintings from September 1970 to June 72, all produced between the ages of 87 and 91, before his death in April 73. Picasso's final years were a creative frenzy, in which the artist seemed constantly to be attacking canvases, plates, prints, and any other material that came to hand. So when in 1969 a large delivery of art supplies arrived at his Mugan studio, 
Fuel for the next furious cycle of production, he was not content to use the new inks, paints, and brushes alone. Everything, from the hairy string and thick paper wrapping of each parcel to the corrugated cardboard boxes in which they had arrived, suggested a potential service for experimentation, and he quickly went to work painting a series of 29 portraits in unusual style. Produced in oils and gauche applied directly to the unprepared boxes and paper sheets, these bizarre portraits feature the mustachioed musketeers that dominate his final works, alongside depictions of Balzac, Shakespeare, and more aggressively abstracted female faces. End quote. We hear a strange beeping before we might guess what it is. Diana comes into view, second 19, she enters the room and pauses. Second 25, we get the reverse shot, which is indeed the opposite corner of the billiard room. That round painting on the wall still hangs there in a photograph in the Architectural Digest piece. Out of place in this mansion is a hospital-style bed, with several pieces of electronic equipment nearby. Lying in the bed, in a robe and slippers, reading a book, is Jack Caper, Richard Farnsworth. Second 28, in case we haven't guessed what that beeping is yet, we get another angle on the doorway. Diana looking past camera, Ed oddly looking right at camera, a physiologic monitor blurry in the foreground. Diana slowly enters the room, the camera panning with her. Ed glances at her once but returns his gaze toward Jack. Second 39, Diana stops. Second 42, she speaks. Jack? Close on Jack, second 43. His robe is nice, black and gray stripes, red trim. Beneath it, he wears maroon pajamas. Despite being apparently bedridden, he is quite lively in his reaction, immediately looking up from his book. He raises his hand to lower his glasses. He has an IV stuck into the back of his hand. He removes his glasses and smiles, just barely, more with his eyes than his mouth. Second 47, angle on Diana again, closer to the original camera angle for them entering the room. That horn lamp is visible again to the left, the wooden double door to the right. Diana moves forward, eyeing the electronic equipment. A monitor, a portable defibrillator, basic blood pressure and anesthesia machinery, an IV pole with two bags of clear liquid, a crash cart. Despite the vague description Jack is about to offer about his condition, there doesn't seem to be any obvious equipment for transfusions or dialysis of any sort. In fact, while we can hear the beep of a vital signs monitor, Jack doesn't seem to be attached to anything but the IV. Second 49, downward angle on the bed and the equipment, Diana coming into frame from lower right. Jack, what's happened to you? She moves between Jack and the equipment, close to the bed. Now they say my blood's gone bad on me. Second 55, angle on Ed. Alone now, taking a few steps closer. I'm buying it by the case. Second 57, close on Jack. Like champagne. He smiles. Angle over Jack at Diana. She is amused, like a daughter might be amused by this dumb line from her father. See last minute and the suggestion that Diana is effectively letting all of these men take care of her, not necessarily as a lover, but as a child. And time runs out for this minute. Incidental Music was Some of My Fears by Daisy May, available on freemusicarchive.org under a Creative Commons share like license. Once again, I am Robert Black. You may call me The Professor. Check out LemmingDrops.com to see all the stuff I have been up to, including Annihilation Minute. The Slow Burn Podcast, where I am covering Annihilation one minute at a time. 
It is a deep dive with research into, so far, nematode gene sequencing, divorce, philosophy, post-traumatic stress disorder, objects falling from space, cosmic horror, and Ballardian science fiction. It's a podcast with its own reading list. You can find the Into the Night podcast on iTunes and Google Play or check out nightminute.com. Follow at Nightminute on Twitter or join us on Facebook at the King Lives Listener's Limo. Join us again here next time on the Into the Night Minute. Do we thank you or what? I'd say I fall in the or what category.